Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 46. Yes, 46. All right. Um, before we uh, get started, I wanted to say thanks to everybody for submitting us to the podcast awards, everybody that did that. Uh, we don't yet know if we were nominated, but uh, whether we are or not, I do appreciate uh, all the support that uh, that people have thrown my way. Uh, and also, yeah, I've uh, noticed lately we've been getting a lot of emails regarding um, the show, and it's all very, very encouraging, um, and people uh, seem to be responding pretty well to the minisodes, uh, in spite of the fact that they're just me just totally indulging myself. Um, but people seem to enjoy that, uh, mostly, especially me. So that's, that's what the internet's right. for. So yeah, that's what's. What are you implying? I've no, nothing. I have two podcasts. I've embraced the internet wholeheartedly. Yeah. No, I know, because apparently what I have to say is very important. Clearly, but yeah. So thanks for everybody. Uh, thanks to everybody for um, your emails. I really appreciate it. It's nice to know that not only that people are listening, but that um, we're putting out a show that people. Um, are not only interested in, but f- feel the need to respond to. So uh, thanks, everybody, for your feedback. Um, all right. So uh, quick, just the quickest of introductions uh, to today's episode. So we mentioned last episode, for those I'm sure most of you did not uh, did not hear it, and that's that's okay. Hang on. i got to turn this down now because I've got so many computers to take care of now. Did we um, give away everything that happens in that movie, or did we kind of keep it a little bit of a secret? I mean, it is an, it is something that actually happened, so it's not... Yeah, like I think could... it's... I don't think people are worried about spoilers. I just think it's a movie that people haven't just haven't seen and maybe aren't that interested in seeing. We could um, tell them what a companion film is here in case they haven't, and then they could go back and check it out. Or is that giving it away? No, it's, it's fine. The companion film is All the President's Men. And you've probably seen that, you listener. Maybe. I don't think so. I'll bet more people have seen All the President's Men than have seen Fair Game. Oh, no question about it. I mean, of of your listeners. Yes. In general as well, but of course. Well, it's been around a little bit longer. A little bit. But um, but yeah, so, uh, and I I would uh, encourage everybody to go back and and, uh, watch Fair Game and All the President's Men and then listen to that episode. Uh, And at the end of that episode, one of the things that we talk about is trying to be respectful. Uh, when we don't agree with somebody and when and specifically when we think that we are right and they are wrong, whether it be in their philosophy and their execution of that philosophy, whatever. Uh, and then we decided to put ourselves to the test uh, of how <laughs> respectful we can be. And what a test it was. We'll see <laughs> how this works out. Is that the exact opposite of what we're meant to be doing? I don't know. To it's... be respectful to immediately if we're trying to be respectful to say like, boy, what a slog that was! No, that's all right. It's it was a bit of a slog, and I uh, I wound up uh, averting my eyes from the screen frequently, as I tend to do when something on the screen on on a movie screen embarrasses me. I saw I, I saw that. What I want to do when something ridiculous happens in a movie is I want to say something about it. But you, like, I want to be that guy that talks in the movie theater when the movie's bad. But then yeah. at the same time, I know some people are probably enjoying the movie. People clearly were when we went to see it the other day. So mm-hmm. I, I chose to be respectful and shut up. Yeah, and uh, so real quick, uh, the movie that we're talking about today is Courageous. It's a Christian film from the uh, makers of Fireproof. And uh, an interesting thing, uh, as as I expected, I did not uh, enjoy it. I liked it more than I thought I 
wood, and I mm-hmm. think it's better than I thought it was going to be. It's certainly better than fireproof, uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. But what's interesting is that uh, people in the theater were talking, um, and it's interesting that even when I'm watching a movie I do not enjoy, I I want to be like, hey, stop talking. I'm listening to this mostly terrible dialogue. <laughs> Delivered pretty poorly by this actor. The thing that bothered me the most, this is something I've never even seen happen in a movie theater before. There was a, uh, there were a couple people that were coming down towards the front, and they weren't ushers, they were just moviegoers with a flashlight that had gotten a flashlight off out, I guess, to find their seats, and for several seconds at several different points as they were sitting down, shine the flashlight directly at the screen. Yeah. I've seen ushers have flashlights in before, but I've never seen anyone for any kind of extended period of time shine a flashlight at the screen. And I thought, if that keeps happening, I'm going to walk. It was all the way across the theater. I was like, I'm going to go and say, stop doing it that. Was, it was an older an older woman who I, I assume did not want to trip, and I, I will give her that. But at the same time, part of me just... Oh, I do. I think she maybe needed the flashlight to get down, and then once she had sat down, I think maybe she couldn't tell that the flashlight was was right. shining on the screen. And if that had been the case, I think my if I had gone over, I would have said, "Excuse me, you're shining your flashlight, your flashlight on the screen. Yeah. It's difficult to see. Could you please stop?" Yeah, it's uh, it was an interesting experience, and I'm get, and again, this is going to be you know the test of how committed I am to being respectful because what I an interesting thing that you and I didn't really talk about because we went went to see it together um we didn't really talk about the experience afterwards but the impression that i get and we can speak to this maybe in a general sense uh later on in the episode is that a lot of people in that theater don't usually go to movies did you get that impression like this is not that not that this is the first one they've been to since fireproof or anything Mm -hmm. like that but i get the impression that Theater etiquette was not really on their mind because they don't go enough to even think about that. I might be, be prejudiced here or something. No, I, I I don't know that that's necessarily true, but it could be. I mean, there are things like the, there was theater etiquette that was breached several times, and there was uh, some of the audience reaction seemed big for for the whatever event elicited that reaction. Like, some of the laughs seemed a lot bigger mm-hmm. for jokes that were not really good jokes. They were just, you know... And, and there are some decent jokes in there, I think, yeah. in the movie. But sometimes the audience response seemed so big to what's like seems like a chuckle line to anyone who's been to very many comedies. Right. And um, I think some of some of the reactions to the... I don't know if it was to the peril or to uh, maybe when something bad would happen to someone. I'd hear people go, "Oh, yeah." There were there were a couple of times like that, and you don't hear that in in movies often. You don't. And and what I want to and I I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm being rude. Maybe I am, but I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying. You will probably notice a tone at some point when I'm trying to be funny and disrespectful and stuff. I'm going to try not to strike that, but but uh, it'll probably sneak through. Um, so I'm trying, I'm trying not to be that, but what I, what I will say is that perhaps, um, perhaps the, the reactions, whether it be laughter or gasps or applause at times, um, perhaps they were bigger because not merely was the audience so receptive, 
but it was almost as though, you know, and, and I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. I don't think I'm being judgmental when I say that a lot of people that go to see movies like this don't see a lot of movies in general because they feel like they're on their they're on guard, whether it be for language or whatever the case may be. And so they uh, so this was a film in which they could finally let their guard down and. Anytime you're sort of, you know, maybe tense in general, but then you're finally in a place where it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I think you're more I think you're a bit more likely to get be a little bigger with everything like, oh, a chuckle line. I I will laugh. It's I don't think it's a conscious thing. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. I think it's unconscious. I think it's a reaction to um, I, I think it's a byproduct of them not, as you said, not seeing a lot of comedies. And so. If this is what passes for comedy and they don't have to worry about they don't have to worry about straining through like maybe something inappropriate, then everything will be much, much bigger because they're breathing easy. Hmm. Um, But uh, but yeah, I I do want to sort of save a general discussion of uh, Christian film and and, uh, the audience for it. I kind of want to save that towards the end of the episode. Sure. Um, But uh, but yeah, so. But we've already started to talk about it because movies like Courageous and like Fireproof, they do appeal to a very specific demographic, and certainly they do well. Uh, Courageous was, uh, I mean, it placed fourth uh, over the weekend, but for a movie with a uh, an estimated budget of about $2 million, it made $9.5 million in its opening weekend. Mm-hmm. I believe it actually made its money back just in pre-sales. Wow. And so, you know, nine million is not a huge thing, but for a movie of this size that was definitely not made in Hollywood, you know, that's a big deal. And so there is a market for this. And I think it would be foolish for people like you and like me to just dismiss the entire Christian film industry. Mm-hmm. Christians want to see movies. Provided, of course, it has a certain type of content. And unlike, and and I don't think I object to that kind of content, provided, of course, the execution is there. Uh, provided they're not making artistic compromises in order to deliver this content. And that was my bit, that was my big problem with Fireproof. You can go back and listen to that. It's episode, I think, 13. And I have, uh, I had Nathan Potter on to talk about it. And, uh, so first reactions real quick. Courageous is a, I said it a moment ago, it's a better film than Fireproof. I was quite surprised, maybe even shocked, to see how much improvement the director, Alex Kendrick, had made as a filmmaker. That's the first thing I noticed in in watching the movie is that we we all harp so much on all the, how there were so many problems with Fireproof, so many glaring problems as a movie that to see this one and and it's not that bad it's it's impressive almost i i would feel like i was incredulous at times like this seems like it should be worse and mm-hmm. it, it's doing a lot of things right it's still got a lot of weaknesses but uh i don't know i i, I feel like this sounds and maybe it's kind of a backhanded compliment but the group of people who make these movies have gone from being bad filmmakers to being mediocre filmmakers in my in my mind 
I would say mediocre filmmakers, bad writers. I think the writing is still bad. Um, but from a from direct from a directorial standpoint, from cinematography, editing, like all the mechanics of filmmaking, leaps and bounds uh, improvement. I mean, it's it really amazed me. The music is still pretty ham fisted and pretty over the top. Yeah, you kind of expect that kind of thing. It is, and I don't I don't think that that's limited to. Uh, I think it happens a lot in Christian film and in these type of Christian films, but I I don't think. Uh, melodramatic music like that is limited to to those types. I, I see that in a lot of other in a lot of movies that are that are aimed towards children. Actually, you see that a lot. Mm. Um, I feel like even in some of the some of the Pixar movies, I think some of the music is is uh, is used melodramatically. But which, and frankly, I'm more I'm more inclined to accept that just because the situations are usually. Heightened. Inherently over the top, yeah. whether it be superheroes or talking fish or whatever. <laughs> Whereas this, you know, purports to take place in our reality. Right. And a few things that Where I... there's just no music. Exactly. I don't hear anything. Hang I don't on. hear it now. I only hear the freeway. Well, it's not freeway. It's a busy, the busy street that I live on. The music of the spheres. Whoa. You just blew my mind. Yeah, I know. So, um... So yeah, so I want to, before we get into our problems with it, because I don't want to start off with negativity, I want to start off talking about the positives. Uh, this is a film about uh, police officers, or rather sheriff's deputies, or, or whatever, and uh, there's a little bit of action. There's a sort of a, not so much a car chase. Well, should we go through just sort of the general plot first? Sure, and then absolutely. Go back on them? I'll, let you, I'll let you take that. Well, great. Um, and there will be some... Uh, uh, a little spoilers in this. Maybe I'll warn you immediately right beforehand so you can turn it down real quick and then go back up. Right. So anyway, um, it centers around four sheriff's deputies in small town Georgia. And uh, I guess the action really starts when the sort of the main character, uh, it's Adam, Adam Mitchell, is mm-hmm. that correct? Uh, played by the director, Alex Kendrick. Um, here comes a spoiler. Watch out. Uh, his daughter dies in an accident. Mm-hmm. And in looking back on the way the relationship that he did have with his daughter and maybe the ways that he wasn't the best father he could have been. He also has a teenage son. He, yes. He and in looking back on that other relationship, he kind of uh, he realizes there that there are ways he could be a better father to his son. And so he sort of comes up with a manifesto of, they call it the resolution, um, of things that he's going to do to do a better, to be a better father. And he talks these three other deputies that, uh, that work with him into also taking this resolution. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the three other deputies and there's a, uh, a a friend, uh, like a, a, uh, a uh, Latino character, uh, who is, you know, having a difficult time finding work and then through, uh, I'd say, you know, divine intervention, mm-hmm. uh, winds up, uh, falling in with, with these guys. And so he also winds up taking, and he's a family man and he winds up taking, right. uh, the, the pledge as well, or signing the resolution or whatever they call it. So the, uh, the story and that we'll come to that, but that's one of the things that I think we both had problems with the, the what the story is exactly about. Mm-hmm. Not what the themes are. I think right. The themes are clear, but the story is a little bit unclear. But 
uh, I think the best way to say it is about it's about the best way to say it is that it's about five fathers who decide that they're going to be more uh, intentional and more intentional in their fatherhood and that they're going to uh, examine the biblical ways in which they can be better fathers. And I think uh, the first thing that I'll say, since we're starting off with positives before we, I'm sorry, inevitably get to the negatives, um, the first thing that I'll say is that Alex Kendrick, as far as the movies he wants to make, he's he's uncompromising in that sense. He With Fireproof, though I thought the movie was pretty terrible, um, the idea of making a film about being intentional in your marriage and even when you're not given anything back, like really trying to embrace what it means to be a husband or a wife and to just try to minister and and bless the person you're married to as much as possible and stop being selfish. That is the theme of fireproof. And it's one that isn't being put out there very often. And I remember I, I sort of, before I saw Fireproof, I sort of applauded the fact that that is a that is an adult theme, and that's an adult story. When I say adult, I don't mean like you know uh, when it says that in a movie that uh, oh this is adults only, this is for mature audiences. It's not adult content, right? But you know most kids aren't going to be that interested in the ins and outs of a marriage. You know that is something for adults, and while I do think that it sort of handled it in a juvenile way. The theme is adult, and much the same way with Courageous. Adam, uh, Alex uh, Kendrick makes movies that clearly are close to him, close to his heart, uh, and that maybe stuff that it's stuff that he's dealing with as a Christian. I have to assume husband and father, and uh, and so he's not. You know, this these aren't movies like. Uh, you know, the Left Behind series or uh, the Omega Code series where they're just trying, where Christian filmmakers are sort of trying to capitalize on making a Christian version of of action movies. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he's doing what I think a filmmaker should do, a a writer and director should do, which is find a story you want to tell or a theme you want to explore and go from there. Don't do the thing that you feel like you're supposed to do or don't cynically try to capture a certain market. Just make the movie you want to make. And that's what he does, and I think that's that's admirable regardless regardless of how the execution wine works out. I think he is I think his in, his instincts start from a good place. And I think we were both saying that he has made strides thematic strides, excuse me, strides thematically, in that uh, we think the film is willing to willing to deal with things that are a little bit edgier, mm-hmm. not edgy in terms of your your general film palette, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there there are real issues that that he deals with in. And sometimes in a sometimes in a in a heavy handed way, sometimes in a in a realistic way. Uh before going to see the movie I had said to uh I was saying to Tyler and to my wife Megan that I didn't think that there was reference to there being some kind of tragedy that happens in the movie. And I was trying to imagine what that would be and I thought it it 
wouldn't be something like a child dying because that seems because that might be too hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. But he proved me wrong that that was one of the central conflicts that they deal with. Um, they also deal with a a, a deadbeat dad, a, a character who mm-hmm. has has a daughter that he's never met uh, with a with a woman that he you know was a one night stand. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, I mean, that's a difficult thing to deal with too. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of. This is, as you mentioned earlier, this is almost a backhanded compliment, but just acknowledging that one night stands exist, yeah, no. is actually a stride in Christian film. Yeah, there is a Christian film often goes too far in in assuming that. Well, if there are children, then they all have married parents, like because right. where else could children come from but married parents? <laughs> and so, just I, I feel like it, it could go further, but it does face some of the harsh realities of life that would that that people who need to hear this message, at least from the filmmaker's point of view. Um, might be experiencing that there are people who might be going through some of these very difficult things who will get something out of this message instead of, you know, what the filmmakers could do is just shoot this message right to the choir, right to all the, uh, the married rich white people. And, <laughs> you know, just, you know, you could just aim it for them because they're the obvious church audience, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't do that. It's, I think a good example is like in Fireproof, um, Kirk Cameron's character. It is uh, it's implied that his character uh, frequently looks at porn on the internet. Now, when I say implied, it would seem well. How do you imply that? Here's how you imply it: Never say the word porn. They seem to act like they never say it in Fireproof. Dealing with, you know, in, a, in acknowledging something that a lot of a lot of men and some women I've heard, you know, uh, deal with and something that can actually like really hurt marriages. And they don't even call it by name. And I and it all like his wife is always like, you're just looking at trash on the Internet. It's like, OK, well, if you want to call it trash, that's fine. But how about this? Call it call it what it is yeah. like, you know, call it out. Uh, were they afraid that? I hate to put it this way. This is where I start to make fun a little bit. Were they afraid that someone would say, like, porn? What's that? And then they go <laughs> They'd online. they go straight to their computer and, they and start Google, Googling. What is porn? And then, of course, porn, you know, a lot of porn pops up. Whereas you can't just say, what is trash? Because that could mean any number of things. That's true. So, like, so I apologize for my tone right now, but, but that's what we were dealing with. And, of course, in this film, they, you know, they have a character who has made mistakes. They have a character who when fi- and this is this is very rare when faced with um I won't say how but one of the men who signs this resolution and of course it's this big moment in the film he signs this resolution and then he goes on to make a huge mistake. And not even a mis- it's not a mistake. It I, I mean it is a mistake but it's intentional. It is a yeah. series of intentional mistakes, choices he is making that flies in the face of what it is he was doing, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that he signed. And so, you know, that's pretty rare, too, uh, the, this idea in Christian film that someone is faced with the truth, acknowledges the truth, commits to the truth, 
and then actually falls away from it. That never happens. This is a film that is edging towards reality. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's quite there yet, but in acknowledging that, like, yeah, the tests that you might have to go through in life could be the death of a child. It's like the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the mistakes you've made could be a one night stand that resulted in, you know, the birth of a child who you neglect. Like that's a very. Those are very real things. Yeah. And and I I'm you know I'm I'm excited that. Alex Kendrick is working towards that, that he's he's embracing the fact that these are movies for adults and adults know what the world is like. Yeah. So. um, So, yeah, that's I'm excited about that. I'm excited about as it turns out, much to my surprise, Alex Kendrick is a is a not merely uh, mediocre not merely adequate, but I would venture to say a good director of action. I agree. Yeah. There are several sequences in the, you know, because I think you were starting to say earlier, because there are cops in it, there are right. foot chases, there are, there's a, even a gunfight at one point. And mm-hmm. it's, it's directed very well. The action yeah. sequences are directed very well. It could have, they, they could have made it very easy by just having like, you know, medium shot in which two characters are fighting or, or anything like that. He seems to... I don't know what happened between Fireproof and Courageous. But Alex Kendrick seemed to... Uh, he seemed to start to understand how filmmaking, how the techniques can heighten the emotion in the story. With the action sequences, he gets in close. There are some quick cuts. Not Michael Bay quick, which is to his credit. Um... You know, like it's chaotic as it should be. It's not pure chaos, Mm -hmm. but it is it is chaotic uh, Mm -hmm. in the midst of, you know, uh, a criminal like just beating uh, one of the cops like that's pretty rough. Um, But he really puts you in the moment. And that's I was not expecting that. Yeah, there's some stuff that's real uh, in the middle of the action. And uh, he uses that technique a little bit that I, I think was popularized in. It may have been around before this, but the first time I remember seeing it was in Gladiator, where uh, I believe the the frame rate on the camera is is uh, mm-hmm. I remember if it's, can I remember if it's up, up or down. I think it's slightly down, which makes mm-hmm. everything look a, li- a little. Uh, it's a little faster and a little herky jerky. Yes, yeah. That and might not be the most technical <laughs> term. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the uh, the director of photography would use the term herky jerky. <laughs> That's what they call those shots. Yeah, I believe it was Greg Toland who said, like, now we want a little herky-jerky. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Film school was seven years ago now. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so a couple of the other things that I want to, a couple other good things about the film that I want to talk about. Um, by and large, unlike Fireproof, and unlike, I'd say, the the vast majority of Christian films that I've seen, um, if not all of them until now, um, I bought pretty much every performance. I'd say pretty much. There's a couple here and there. Like, so as far as the main cast, the main, I'd say six or seven characters, I was, I was, I believed it. And there's a couple performances that are very good. Yeah, I, I think, for the most part, I felt that way. Which is funny because the, um, uh, one of the sheriffs, uh, I think the character's Nathan Hayes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actor appears in Fireproof, and I didn't think he was. I didn't think he gave a very good performance in Fireproof. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I felt like he was pretty good in this one. Yeah, it's there's not a lot of difference between that performance and this one, but there's just a little bit more humanity. There's a little bit more behind the eyes. Yeah. It's it's less okay, I'm trying to remember my lines and it's more mm-hmm. I know my lines and now I'm putting emotion to it. Now <laughs> next step is we don't see the mechanism behind yeah. it, but again, it's that's it's, progress. It's an improvement, definitely. I I feel like the the weakest link in the as far as cast is uh Javi, the Latino character, and his wife, yeah. uh, his wife specifically, I, I don't know. I, I felt like those performances seemed very stagey and artificial to me. Um, yes, he, he I would has, say so. He has some moments where he's a, he's not bad. I, I think I don't like her anywhere in the movie. Um, yeah, his performance, a lot of the other main performances seem to be, whether they achieve it or not, they seem to be striving for a certain naturalism. Javi and his wife, that does seem to be, I believe, yeah, stagey and a little bit heightened. Like the comedy there, it just seems like uh, this is this is like something a bit more out of a sitcom. And uh, it doesn't totally gel with the rest of the film. Well, and that's uh, part of that is also, I think, something we'll come to later. And some issues that we have with the film is the film's treatment of comedy and the comic scenes um i feel like there i think we both felt like there's quite a weakness in those scenes and i guess we can mm-hmm. get to that later yeah and so um and there are specific scenes that i found to be surprisingly powerful um wh- both in the way they're written and the way they're acted and the way they're played out um and often the scenes are sandwiched in between two scenes i don't like um, and so it's, so it's kind of strange, but, uh, one is, um, the, the teenage son of, uh, the main character, uh, who incidentally, I did a little bit of research and that actor, his name is Rusty Martin. And, uh, he acted in a little film called Wesley with our own Josh Long. You're kidding me. Really? Yeah. He played you- young John Wesley. Really? Yeah. That means you got to be in the scene with, I think June Lockhart is in that movie and plays uh, June Lockhart of TV's Lassie. Right. Oh, well, good for him. Yeah. We, we were never on set together, but... Uh, it's unfortunate. You should uh, you should shoot him an email and yeah. be like, hey, we're, we're reviewing your movie this week. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a, a scene where they're all at dinner and the the little girl has, has died at this point and the son has been sort of... Uh, sort of vacant in general his performance i think for the most part is good not great but there is one there's a moment when he finally breaks down and says like i should have been a better brother and the way in which he cries it felt very real that moment felt very naturalistic it seemed like somebody who quite simply couldn't hold it in anymore yeah i I felt the same way i i I feel like maybe the way that it played out and a little bit with the music that there might have been some Emotional manipulation is the way I like to yeah. to phrase it. Um, so the, I'm 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 dubious about my own reaction to yeah. that scene, but at the same time, I I felt the same way. I felt like it was a right. moving scene, at least as I was experiencing it the first time. And it's it might be manipulative, but I'm inclined to say that it isn't simply because I feel like a manipulative scene. Of course, the music's over over the top, as it is in the whole film. But um, I feel like a scene in any movie that is purely manipulative is 
trying desperately to convince you that you feel a certain way. Whereas in this film, I think in that scene, we, we do, you know, we, I do kind of like that little girl and I do kind of miss her. I don't think she was maybe in enough scenes for me to get a strong concept of who she was. And I think that's to the film's detriment, but I do miss her. And the idea that this little girl is no longer going to, is at the very least not going to be in the film anymore and is not in these, these people's lives anymore. This, the, the reality of the situation rang true. It, mm-hmm. Everything about that seemed like the kind of thing that could happen. Um, and so there's nothing inherently manipulative about it. Of course, the music plays it up, and I wish that I could have said, like, you don't need the music. The fact of the situation is enough mm-hmm. uh, to, to get my heartstrings. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other scenes. Uh, one is, okay, so there's a, a scene where the little girl wants to dance with her father and uh and he says no and so she sort of does the dance herself and then after she passes away he goes and does uh quote unquote his part of the dance his side of the dance so he's dancing alone in the park and uh that scene i found to be kind of whatever however it ends with him praying and the prayer for the most part is kind of whatever but there's one line that i loved first off i love the delivery and I just like the way it's written, where he's he's praying to God and he says, Lord, I don't know if if this is right or if I'm right about this or if I'm able to do this. I don't exactly remember the, the phrasing, but he says, like, I don't know if this is right, but please tell my daughter that I did my part of the dance. Now, that is an inherently cheesy thing to say, but I like that the character has, even in this moment, has a moment of doubt where it's like, I don't know if this is how this works, but I so desperately just want to. I don't know, that rang true to me, this idea of, because I, I don't know, someone praying and not being 100% certain that how they are praying is exactly the way they're supposed to pray, quote yeah. unquote. Um, that seems more like the Christian experience to me. It does. <laughs> or more um, truthful to the Christian experience, at least. And that's the thing is, his feelings and his sense of loss overrides his, his formality. Like it, one in in another film, the character would not definitely would not pray in any way that he might doubt. Maybe this, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But the character, his sense of loss is so palpable. Admittedly, after a scene that is kind of overdone and kind of cheesy, but in that moment, it felt so real to me that it's like I'm I'm so overwhelmed by this that, Lord, I'm just going to assume you understand whether I'm right or not. And uh, and I don't know, it just, uh, that moment felt real to me, and I liked it a lot. And then, you and I have talked about this before, uh, maybe off-air, but I know that Nathan and I certainly discussed it in the Fireproof episode. This film has a conversion scene. If you blink, you'll miss it. And that is to the film's credit. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, like, a conversion's a very important thing, but... Um, but the the character and and a lot of the stuff leading up to it, in which the non Christian characters like guys, I don't go in for all that, you know, that all sort this of thing. religion stuff. Yeah, it's funny because, well, I don't want to derail what you're saying, but I don't like that character until after that scene, mm-hmm. and I, I I'm not I don't think it's because like oh he's a bad guy before he's a Christian, but then he has a conversion experience and then he's all good. Right. I think he seems 
artificial in all of the scenes leading up to that scene. Mm-hmm. Like he he's kind of the rookie cop, and so he gets you know some good natured ribbing from the other guys. And I, this yeah. might go back to what I was saying before the problem that the with the way that the comedy is approached and written. Right. Um, so it's he almost he becomes kind of this. Uh, comic relief fall guy, but in mm-hmm. in an in an in a not believable way. Yeah, and so the character seems seems almost like a like a device more than anything else. Yes, until I mean, at this point in the movie, they kind of start taking him seriously as a character because they have to, right? Um, because he has a major confession, and then he has to, you know, then he yeah uh, has a conversion. And um, and don't get me wrong, just because just because they start taking him seriously doesn't mean he's any less of a device. Um, because now they need him to be. It's like okay, we needed you to be the comic relief. Now we need you to be the one who's doubting, and now we need you to be the one that converts. Yeah, and <laughs> it's probably probably part of the reason that I feel that way is after that scene, the character doesn't do very much. He. He might not have another line in the movie. He does have some voiceover where he's writing a letter. That's right. He's writing a letter. But then a lot of the, you know, there's that. And then I think we see him in some montages where he's right. doing things, but we don't hear him talking. I think it's it's mainly because it's, we're, we're very light on dialogue from this character for the remainder of the movie. I mean, we've got a, I think we've got a little bit of like, you know, technical stuff here and there, like during shootouts and such, in which case his dialogue might as well be anybody else's. But um, but during the conversion scene, and it is mostly not written very well, but there's the scene, it ended when I expected it to keep going, and I expected it to keep going in a bad way, in which a character is, you know, he's putting it out there, he's saying all the, you know, Christian stuff about like, well, if you do this, you know, if you accept Christ, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's just it's written kind of clunkily, but at the same time, you know... I'm trying to think, would I say anything differently if I was talking to someone in that situation? Um, but there's a nice mo- there, it's It's really just the end of the scene that I like, in which he says, like, you know, do you, you know, do you want this? And he says, yes. And he's like, well, then what's stopping you? And then he says, nothing. You expect the scene to keep going, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. It stops there. Yeah. And actually, his conversion is sort of left... Left to your imagination, and I think I think that is a step forward for Christian filmmakers to not have to show us the conversion, to mm-hmm. not have to show us someone get down on their knees, or uh, like in uh, like we saw in Seven Days in Utopia when I I wrote Which on I did for not see, but you did, yeah, I, I saw that for Battleship Pretension and wrote the review on it. But there, this scene work, this scene in Courageous works better than the scene in Seven Days in Utopia for several reasons. One. In Seven Days in the in Utopia, the conversion is seems very shoehorned in. Mm-hmm. All it all of a sudden, uh, Robert Duvall's character is telling Lucas Black's character, "Well, hey, you need Jesus," and it it seems to have come out of nowhere. And Lucas Black's reaction to it is huge, in that he starts crying, and I guess realizing that. But that reaction seems unnatural for that character, and it's so big. Mm-hmm. And then. There's like a music montage where we see the character. There's like moving kind of countryish music in the background as the character is like looking at his Bible. And then I, I think he's writing down his, his sins or something and burying them in a, in a grave. 
and then we literally see him walk into a church and the light shines down from above and everything. And so that that that's not a very good conversion scene. Mm-hmm. In Courageous, it it seems to flow mostly naturally. Um, it's it might be because we do hear Christian stuff all throughout. All through so the when movie. the time comes, we're not surprised. So it doesn't but... surprise as much. But it, if if that is one kind of weakness, it at least doesn't have the weakness that it it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I, I I've heard also I've never seen any of these, but apparently there are Christian movies about a, a westerns with some kind of gunslinger who will literally kill the bad guys, shoot the bad guys, and before they die, he kneels down and uh, and converts them. <laughs> really? I someone you know has told me about this. I I don't. Oh um, man, I wish I could find these because they. It'd be something to see. But anyway. Get on it, Internet. You need to email me, <laughs> Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. Tell me about these movies if they exist. Do it for us, Hive Mind. Um, <laughs> hey. I stole that from John Hodgman. I'll, oh, okay. I'll admit. Uh, but anyway, all that to say, the scene's not not shoehorned in, even if that is because we've been in Christian land the whole time already. Right. Um, the character's reaction isn't over the top because I, I think for a lot of people their conversion experience isn't openly weeping because they realize what they've been missing all their lives. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to show us the entire process of like, look how look how he's experiencing the conversion. Like it's enough for us to know that this character has has heard something and seen something that makes him want to change and then we see later on that he has made a change in his life. Right. And so... And another another uh, scene that I like because of okay so the the character uh, Nathan Hayes played by Ken Bevel who was in Fireproof um, a a little subplot and it's I guess it's not even a plot because it's something that happened in the past he talks about how he never really he never knew his real father and. When he reveals that, it just feels like, you know, part of the the way they reveal theme, which is fathers are very important. Like me, I didn't have a father. Uh, allow me to explain how that affected me. You know, it's it's more functional than anything else. Um, and then after the characters, uh, you know, make their resolution, we do get a scene that surprised me. Um, I wasn't expecting it, and frankly, when a f- when a Christian film does something I'm not expecting, that's a win for the Christian film. <laughs> uh, and we see him at, and again, everything that every every praise that I give this film, there's an undercurrent of it's still not great, but it is a step forward. That yeah. is why I am praising it, not because it's great, not because it's amazing cinema. The film is not rocketing to the top of my uh, of my list of two, uh, 2011. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a step in the right direction. And so we see this character who, uh, who throughout the film has sort of been mentioning not having a father. And we do see a nice little facial expression during the resolution scene. And we don't quite know what it means. And we don't, and he doesn't verbalize it in that moment. But then we see him, uh, at a gravesite. And it turns out that it is his his father, who of course, who as I mentioned, he's never known, and he is talking to him and talking about how much anger and bitterness is in his heart and how he wants to forgive his father, and and wanting some sort of reconciliation, which of course he can't have because the father is now dead, and so he talks about, you know, I I 
perhaps you perhaps you met Christ sometime through your life and we'll see each other again uh, in the next life. But uh, but it's a scene that I just I think I like the payoff aspect of it, which is it understands that, oh, this character made this resolution, so everything's fine. But him making the resolution, it not only... I don't know, it, it understands the complexity of that. It's not merely, okay, what kind of father is he going to be? But it's also, well, what kind of, well, what kind of father did I have or did I not have? And do I need to make peace with that as well? Um, and that's the thing, is the film, even in the stuff that it explores... Not all of it, of course, but in some of the stuff that it explores, it understands that there are multiple layers to it. It's not merely who you need, you know, what you do, but it's what has been done to you. Mm -hmm. And how do you react to that? Yeah. And so I think thematically I like that scene, but also structurally I like it because it shows, well, it shows a pretty clear character arc. Um and we see a, a change that we weren't expecting because we see a character who he acknowledges that his dad was never in his life and the way that that affected him. But eventually we see that even he didn't fully understand what that the effect that that had had on him. And so while I think the 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 dialogue in that scene is only OK and the delivery is only OK. I think of the fact of the scene, what it means thematically and structurally and for the character, I think I liked that as well. Mm. So I think that covers all the positives. Mm. So to recap, before we get into the other part, um, huge leaps forward from Fireproof. Um, I agree. Thematically, artistically, the whole thing. Still deeply flawed, mm-hmm. but I think I'm safe in saying I'm looking forward. I'm not sure if I'd say I'm excited, but I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. I am too. I mean, I think if they could continue to to move forwards in this way, I feel like they could. It's they could soon be making movies that I can legitimately say without any misgivings. This is a good movie. This mm-hmm. is, yeah. It might be a few movies. It might be you know, two or three movies out there, but it's, it sort of delivers, it delivers on a promise that I thought they were making with fireproof. I remember I, I, as I said, I wrote a blog about fireproof saying this marks a good step, which is moving towards what, towards adult themes Mm -hmm. and making movies for adults. And that film, and that film was not good, but this film, once you start realizing who your audience is, and that they're intelligent, and that they've experienced life too, I feel like you almost can't help but start treating them more like adults and challenging them, mm-hmm. understanding they're adults. They'll get it. You don't have to spell everything out at all times. Yeah. It is spelled out quite a bit, yeah. but I'm I'm We I'm see excited. it less now than we did in Fireproof. Yes, very much so. And I expect to see it even less in the next film. Yeah. So, all right. Now then. Now, if uh, if you're a huge fan of Courageous and you don't want to hear anything bad about it, now would be the time <laughs> to stop listening. However, Josh is being a little bit facetious. Well, yes, because people who have people who have come up with any kind of problems about the movie have apparently, as you've told me, been a, been accused of 
either not being good Christians or not having good fathers or something of that nature. Yes. Which I think is unfair. And if you're the type of person who thinks that you're going to blame anyone who doesn't like this movie, uh, you're going to blame that on anyone who doesn't like this movie. Uh, we would we would prefer that you just not listen to the rest of us. And uh, <laughs> I want you to keep listening. All right. Because <laughs> okay. here's the thing. I've and I, I apologize. This might sound a little argumentative, but if you happen to have found this episode from, say, IMDb, I will be posting this in several places on IMDb. Um, if you found us on IMDb. I want you to acknowledge I did not like Fireproof and I don't like 99.9% of Christian film, including this film, by the way. However, and I'd say the same goes with Josh. However, we gave this film a chance and saw good in it. I would ask that you give us a chance to explain the bad that we saw in it. That is all. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but extend us the same courtesy that we extended this film. No, I think that's fair. So, now then, what I didn't like about the movie. Actually, I'll, I've been talking for a while. Josh? Well, I'll, I'll start out with the, kind of the biggest thing, which was, to me, the narrative structure of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I made kind of a veiled reference to it before, but it's a little, it's a little unclear exactly what the story is about. We've got these four characters, and we kind of get to know them for a little while. And we learn some of their backstory, and we kind of see what their life is like. Then, quite a ways into the movie, the tragedy occurs. Mm-hmm. The The daughter dies. From then on, we have kind of a sequence where uh, of dealing with the grief, which I would say goes on longer than it needs to. And... Then we get to him making the resolution. Now, that that's a narrative step forwards. But after that point, I feel like we idle for, for a while. We see, other, we see the other characters um, kind of going through some things in their lives. We see some of them decide that they're also going to take the resolution. We see them sort of prepare for the resolution. But this is a lot of movie where that's happening. That's not like a 15-minute sequence where we're all, they all get together and say, hey, we ought to... You know, we should all take this resolution. Um, So you get the feeling that the movie isn't necessarily going anywhere. And ultimately, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I think we see at we see at the end how different people or how these different characters deal, approach this resolution and what they do with it and how it affects them. But as far as from from a narrative point of view nothing else really happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have 30 to 45 minutes of movie, something bad happens and someone decides to make a resolution. You have maybe 30 minutes of movie where the others decide that they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then we just see all of them after they've done it and just things that are happening in their lives. Right. Now, a lot of those things apply. A lot of those things we see how the resolution, a lot of those things show us how the resolution has affected them, but story-wise, again, we don't go anywhere. I, I, I don't know that most of the characters don't really go through any kind of change after that, and I'd, I'd say that uh, Ken Bevel's character, Nathan Hayes, goes through almost no change whatsoever. Right. The scene you mentioned, he does, we see an emotion from him that we have not seen before, 
But that's not so much a change. That's more no. just a realization inside himself. Yes. But he, but because he is who he is, he's going to face it head on, and yeah. that's all. Yeah. And as likable as a character as that is, it, it's a very one-dimensional character. I, I would you say that he's shown to have any flaws in the movie? No, I don't think so. They maybe admit that he's had some bitterness towards his father, but we never see that. We only, right. we're just meant to, <laughs> the only time that we see any real evidence of it, or well, we don't see any real evidence of it, yeah. but the time where it's mentioned the most is where we see him apologizing for it to his father's grave. Yeah. So we never... And there could have been scenes where you see him be a little... Sh- a little sharp-tongued about it, and, yeah. and definitely bitter. You could have had that, and I, th- I think it would have been more effective if we had seen that somehow trickle down into way that he, t- the way that he treats his family. Right. I think he's never shown to be in any way, anything but a perfect father to his family. Right. The same with the Javi character. I think. Um, I think he's only shown in a positive light. Yeah. Um. The other three characters, I'd, I'd say we see some flaws in them. Do you think there's an uh, – I don't know that this is necessarily the case. Do you think part of that reason is because those three other characters are white and it's possible that these, as white filmmakers, are a little reticent about putting any flaws to minority characters? I, I, it's possible. I, I think it's that an, happens sometimes. It's entirely possible. This, I mean, it, there is – you know, if I, a film like this is certainly not beyond the idea of tokenism. Yeah. Of this idea where, hey, you know, uh, look how uh, multicultural we are, um, but we're not racist. Look, see, in spite of the fact that pretty much all the villains are black, we do have this this black character over here who's completely perfect. And we have this uh, Latino character, pretty much also perfect and a hard, hard worker. Yeah. Um, and... and and I'm not saying that, like, you know, it's. I'm not saying they have to make those characters deeply flawed or evil, but no. just make them more human. Yeah, and that that leads a little bit into another possible issue with it. Well, when I first first walking out of it, I I had to think to myself, is this movie racist in its treatment of some of the minorities? And I don't know that it's racist, but I think it's maybe naive or incomplete in its portrayal of minorities Mm -hmm. um yeah would you say the the point you know like when you you would you achieve this uh this racial open-mindedness when you start just recognizing and don't get me wrong i understand that like you know different races have different cultures and that will have an impact on who that person is um, so I don't mean to, I don't mean to, to say that, you know, we all have different backgrounds, but, uh, but yeah, it's being like being careful to make sure that the minority characters are absolutely, you know, totally polished and not a, not a flaw in them doing that because they are minority is really not that different than demonizing a character because they are a minority. Either way, you are seeing them as, you know, race first, and then that dictates your actions, and that dictates how you treat them. So the thing to do is to just 
treat the characters as any other, especially quite frankly in a in a small you know in a small town. You know, mm-hmm. like there's really only one culture in that small town. Yeah, and and so I think that's. Uh, I think that is a that is a flaw, and you'll find that flaw, by the way, in Hollywood filmmaking too. No, that's it's not true. just Christian filmmaking. No, um, but I mean, we do. I believe, I think every criminal that we see, except for maybe one, every criminal that we see that is allowed a role, like an yes, actual, certainly that an actual line. There, we do see a couple of like white. Uh, kids being like handcuffed, but for for the vast majority, all the characters that have any kind of dialogue, and most of the ones that don't, as criminals are mm-hmm. are black characters, right? And I was saying to Tyler that the way that they look and and act seems seems taken from the cover of Fifty Cent albums. You know, <laughs> it, it's a little, it's a little on the nose. Well, it's it's stereotypical, which isn't the same thing as being, which isn't the same as being racist, but. I think sometimes you can see one when you see a movie play up a stereotype, it can read as racism a little bit. Yeah, and I, I don't think that there's, I don't know that there's true racism in this film, but I think, I think there's an, a, a naivete, a little bit of a simplicity, and kind of a stereotypical attitude towards some of the minorities, all I, of the minorities in it. I think the worst that I can file against it is maybe a certain laziness and a desire to take shortcuts, which is we don't need to sh- the like in the opening scene we see when we see one of these uh one of these criminals and we know he's evil because of the way he dresses and like we don't need to lo- we don't need to hear a word he says we don't need to see anything he does the minute he steps out of his car and he's got the do rag and we he's got he's, the chains yeah we know he's up to no good he's up to he's up to something and so i feel like and that's a shortcut that's not i don't know yeah and it's and that's the kind and that's the kind of thing that you do expect to find in in christian films is just making just putting i don't know a certain lack of nuance where it's like okay, this guy is bad, so we we will dress him like this, and he will walk like this because that's how evil people are. So it's mm-hmm. it's a very Chester Gould way of approaching it. Uh, Chester Gould, of course, wrote Dick Tracy and all the villains there. You knew there were villains because they were quite <laughs> grotesque. Like it's just that's it's, oh, is that guy? That guy has you know wrinkles all over his face or a flat top, if you will. Um, I think he's a criminal, and so that's. It's that sort of instinct that I think, uh, yeah, I think films in general, but Christian films specifically, should probably try to get over. It shouldn't be as easy as tucked in shirt, good guy. Baggy pants, bad guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I would say that my my big problem with it was uh, was story structure. Um, I'll get into some of the some of the other points as well, but um, I'm. First off, I'm a big fan of any film that takes its time, and this movie was two hours. And I will say, you feel every bit of the every minute of, the, of that two hours, um, but that's all right. I, there are movies, there are slow movies that I love, and you feel that they're slow, but they, I kind of feel like they need to be. I understand that, and I'm okay with it. Um, but this, there's a difference between a film that takes its time and a film that doesn't quite know where it's going and meanders, and that's what this one is. And I'm not necessarily. I, I don't want to sound like some kind of screenwriting teacher, but the three-act structure works. If you're going to deviate from it, 
you need to be a better filmmaker than Alex Kendrick is. You need to have a very good reason to deviate from that. And I'll admit, some of my favorite films do deviate from that. I think my favorite film from this year so far is Tree of Life, which certainly deviates from any kind of traditional structure. But there's a very good reason for it, and there's a very steady hand behind it. And I Mm -hmm. don't feel like this is the case with Courageous. Right. It's. I believe uh, as we're as we're uh, driving home from the uh, the theater, I believe the way I described it is that this is this is less a story than a collection of scenes featuring the same characters. There isn't much of an arc, and what's more is when the what arc there is when it's done. There's still a solid thirty minutes left of film, and it really just sort of it feels like a mini series that is only two hours long. Um, because, uh, you know what? Spoilers. I'm going to say spoilers. There is a a plot development. Um, and I say that, that in itself is a bit of a spoiler because there's not much plot in this movie. So the very fact that there is a development is a bit of a spoiler. I'm being rude. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, one of the police officers that has taken, uh, this pledge, signed this resolution, whatever, um, it turns out that he has been uh, stealing uh, evidence, specifically drugs, and selling it. This character has been is divorced. His wife is killing him with alimony. He wants to be a better father, but money is on his mind. They do set that up a little bit, but there is a there's a, a scene very late in the film, probably about fifteen to twenty minutes left in the film. Maybe near, I'd yeah. say a solid fifteen. Yeah. And um, so the main character discovers that that evidence something's wrong with the evidence. Like it's not uh, it's not matching. What we turn in is not what they have in the storeroom. So what's going on? And then he looks into it, figures it out, all within seven minutes, if that. And what's more is like there's. There's the conflict of, hey, what's going on? And then in the next scene or two, the resolution. And it's like, oh, so you've introduced a major, major plot development and resolved it within a 10-minute span. You could have, if you wanted to, you could have set up the mystery 20 minutes in. Yeah. This is one of the problems... Well, this is one of the reasons the story structure doesn't work so much. Is he? Ha- there are several arcs that are kind of small and never have they never have a chance to build or to have any kind of big resolution. One of these is this one. Um, another one is so cent and it's so central to the theme uh, of the whole film. This main character, uh, his son has always wanted him to to run in this five k with him. That's a whole. Right. That's a theme and a little bit in the beginning. And then his, his, uh, after the daughter dies, it's not really talked about that much. And then in one scene he says, oh, I'm going to run with you. And then we see him at one point mm-hmm. running with him. That, that could be a major arc with, where, it, where there's a lot of drama to it. But it, it doesn't. It doesn't really right. go anywhere. This one's the same way. We find out a character's doing something wrong. Next scene, we bust him for it. And uh, we don't see any in-betweens. And there's a there. By the way, there is a scene. There's a, a a moment where the main character, after the daughter has passed away, he goes to see his pastor and has what I think is actually a pretty good scene between the two of them. Pretty good, not great. Um, and then he says, "I need to. I want to know what God expects from me as a father." The pa- the the pastor nods approvingly, 
fade out, fade in six, six weeks, weeks later. later. Six weeks. I hate to say it, but the drama of this uh, the drama of this story is in that six weeks. That's your movie right there. Like all of these other things could be happening during that point where he's having to deal with it. Like, yeah, we shouldn't jump right to the resolution. And and I, when I say the resolution, I mean the the manifesto that they come up with that they right. call the resolution. Um, <laughs> funny, we're talking about a movie that has pro- plot structure problems when the resolution <laughs> appears in the middle of the movie. <laughs> That's a nice way of phrasing it. Um, yeah, and it's just, and I think, I think it had to do with. I, I wonder if perhaps that Alex Kendrick, as a writer, was a little scared to deal with. He 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 dealt with them a little bit. The the fact of the daughter dying, um, you know, the brother dealing with it, the mom and dad, you know, crying and 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 kicking, you know, kicking the father into gear about. Well, I need to make some changes in my life. He deals with that. But as far as the complex emotions of grief, especially in the first, I mean, the, you know, my father passed away and, very, and you know, I had a friend who, pa- who passed away and my grandfather, like, it's, the first year is rough, much less the first month and a half. It's funny, when I, uh, I think a little, after, a few scenes after that, I started, I, I think I had assumed that it said six months later instead of yeah. six weeks later because of the way that they were approaching everything as if they were kind of past it and i thought six weeks is not very long to be to be off of a tragedy like that for everyone to pretty much just be going on i've normal. had a cold that lasts six weeks <laughs> you know what i mean like i i don't mean to be so so negative about it but like they're in it that, as, as we said that's the movie yeah him trying to be a better father in the face of guilt and loss and tears and the distance that grief can cause between the other members of the family and yeah. having to fight against that yeah. specifically to be a better husband and father and between him and the other characters him and the other yeah. uh, uh the other deputies specifically like there's a there's drama to be had there and i feel like and that is a that is a huge wasted opportunity i don't know why he did it as i said it might be because he wanted he he wasn't interested in dealing with that. He wasn't interested in dealing with the really ugly human parts of the story he was telling. I think it, it, I think you may be right and that it's more important for him to use that as a device to get us to the resolution than it is uh, to deal with dramatically. And I feel like that's that is ultimately what's what the problem is. The way I feel like at first the way they deal with the loss of the daughter is pretty good. I'm okay with how much time they spent on it. But once it jumps six weeks, we do get that scene I was talking about where he, he does the dance. But aside from that, we don't really hear it again. We don't see him really crying about it. We don't see him talking about it. The implication is that he's gotten over it. But the fact is he didn't get over it. The film got over it. Yeah. And there's a big difference. Yeah. And he, that is... He does vaguely mention it in the uh, sort of altar call in the last scene. But, right. But um, he mentions it as if it's like, as you all know, this happened to me and it and it got me thinking. <laughs> ah! You know, you just breezed over the loss yeah. of your child, right? <laughs> the Just because the filmmakers think of it as a as an inciting incident doesn't mean that all the characters would do that. Inciting incident. Look at you saying your uh, screenwriting terms. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just got Robert McKee here leaning over my shoulder. 
What if I did that every now and then? And I was like, yeah, the, the film treats it as an inciting incident. And he would sound like that. I think you should do that. I'm going to do that for now. Every time I use a, a film school type word, I'm going to do go. it in the Robert McKee voice. There you go. <laughs> Get ready, because I'm, I'm about to talk about falling action. So, um, but yeah, it's... It's a shame that like they build up to this tragedy, they deal with it a little bit, and only after is it revealed that it's like, oh, it was only this. And it's it's quite it is quite unfortunate. And that to me is maybe the least satisfying thing about the film. Um but so that's in broad terms, that's the thing that I that I don't like about the movie. Now it may sound like, oh, so story structure is the only thing they have a problem with? It's a big thing. Especially when you're dealing with you know, character arc. I mean, this is a character film. I mean, this is, I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm about to say. This is kind of like a Mike Lee film. There are little events throughout, but it's really just about these characters and how they interact. Now, this is not, I'm going to say this is maybe one, one thousandth as good as a Mike Lee film, but that's the structure. And when that's your structure, you can't shy away from the the hard moments. Mm -hmm. And you need to know you need to be completely confident in the story that you're telling and the characters that are in it. Yeah. And I did not get the sense from this film. Uh, and and as much progress as Kendrick did make as a filmmaker, I think he needs he needs to make a lot of progress as a writer. Because I haven't even been talking about the dialogue. A lot of the dialogue is pretty bad. And that, that will go into a little bit about, about what I was going to say. Um, you were saying... It needs to spend a lot more time dealing with some of these issues and some of the the drama that that's potentially there. But it does spend a lot of time giving us little comic relief scenes, and like I mentioned before, I have a lot of problems with the comedy in the film, and I think uh, a lot of those stem from dialogue. Yeah. Um, there are several scenes in the movie that I think are meant to get us to kind of know these characters, just to see this is what they do, this is when they're having fun. Um, but none of them to me ring true. Uh, no. this is a specific one that we were talking about after seeing the film was where they're having a cookout at the one, uh, at, uh, the Alex Kendrick character at his house. And it looks like the most sterile <laughs> staged high yeah. school theater party I've ever seen. It's a we don't table. see anybody standing at a grill. We don't see anybody having fun. It no. starts with them sitting, all sitting at a table. And it ends with them all sitting at a table. Right. As it, if they're a bunch of mob bosses <laughs> deciding the fate of the city. Yeah, it's it's... I think it's either actors who are uncomfortable in a space, actors who haven't, like... It, yeah, it's either actors who are uncomfortable in the space they're in or a director who hasn't given them, encouraged them to feel natural in this space. It's kind of interesting that as, as much improvement as Alex Kendrick made as an action director, he is on very uneven ground and is very, yeah, displays no confidence at all at all when it comes to staging dialogue, when it comes to just, ba I mean, the most basic uh, dialogue staging and that sort of thing and so and that's the problem is that when you just have characters sitting around at a table and that's it we don't have any dynamic movements where a character's you know grilling while this person over here is you know getting something to drink and these two other guys are sitting at the table and they're shouting from the table like there's a way to quite frankly distract from the bad dialogue yeah but when you just have people sitting we have no choice but to listen to this stuff. Yeah. And it's 
pretty bad. And, I mean, I think some action or some business can make bad dialogue better. I mean, mm-hmm. I think any actor will tell you when he has something to do, he can deliver his lines in a more... Uh, in a more believable way, oh yeah, rather than just sit around. And uh, there's, there's kind of if you start to think about it too much, it becomes unbelievable too. Because what, what is this cookout that they're having? We see the scene earlier where, uh, where he's in, where Alex Kendrick's character is inviting the others to this this cookout. At first, he only invites his partner Shane to the mm-hmm. cookout, and then kind of reluctantly invites the rookie. We never see him invite. Uh, Nathan Hayes. Right, but the rookie has been paired with uh, the new guy who's Nathan Hayes. Right. So we assume that maybe that happened later on because right. Nathan Hayes is the new guy. But if uh, if he hadn't reluctantly invited the rookie, would it have just been these two guys having a cookout by themselves sitting behind the house? Like, where's where are their where are their families? Where right? Where is uh, at least Alex Kendrick's family? He where is his yeah. wife? Where are his kids? Are they all sitting inside while he's having a cookout outside? Just and that's the thing is you can have how about this bring eight more people just milling about on the yard you don't have to deal you don't it's, have to deal with them it's Georgia you don't have to pay extras very much <laughs> there you go there's a little bit of uh, practical uh, help for you there uh, Alex Kendrick um, but yeah and you mentioned the the humor um, there are some jokes and some moments of humor that actually work but are then ruined. Um, there's and, a, and that's at least is, is another good thing to say about it that there are some moments that are that are legitimately funny because yeah. I don't think there's a moment in Fireproof that is legitimately funny and they the, try they try yeah. and some of those scenes are are terrible the scene yeah. where the guy's making faces in the mirror those are not funny scenes they're no. very it's and it's it's it hurts even more because you can see the movie trying to be funny mm-hmm. and falling completely flat imagine if you ever. Uh, been with a friend even harder if it's a friend that you like who's trying to make jokes and nobody's laughing and they just keep making jokes uh, yeah. it it feels like that if it, it felt forced whereas some of the comedy kind of sprung from the kind of th- you know i mean it's it this is a very basic theory of comedy it sprung from it springs from a place that we all know for example here's one of the jokes he is, I believe, he's on the phone with his wife. He's, Alex Kendrick. Is, Alex Kendrick character. is on the phone with his wife. He's driving. Uh, she saw, he, he gets a call from the sheriff, and he says, he goes, oh, I got to take this. I love you. Bye. And then he's on the phone with the sheriff very briefly, not long enough for everything to sink in that he is on the phone with someone else. I mean, of course, it sinks in, but like... You're still sort of in a, and he's driving, so he's already in a in a different. He's already a little distracted, and so he ends the he ends the interaction with the sheriff over the phone with, "Okay, I love you, bye," and he does it instinctively. He does it habitually. I have done that, um, or rather, I have been in a situation like that where somebody said they loved me, and admittedly, this is a, this was a family member. But it's not a family member that I that we declare our love for each other very often. <laughs> but he said it because that's just sort of how he signs off mm-hmm. with like his his family, his his wife, and um and so, and I was like, so he just said to me like, all right, love you, and like uh, yeah, and then we hung up, <laughs> and I was like, ah, should I have said it back? Like there's a there's a, an awkwardness there, and it's a real thing that can happen. 
Yeah. You get locked into this thing. And so, and the sheriff has a night, he doesn't like look at the phone like, what was that? He just sort of has a little kind of shifty eyed and that's it. And that's it. And that was a funny, and I even think his partner then laughs at him and, and in, in not knowing their Alex Kendrick's partner laughs at him mm-hmm. and Alex Kendrick saying, what should I do? Should I call him back? And the partner says, what to tell him you don't love him? Yeah. Which was, that was a funny line. Like that, that all comes the, everything about that scene. It's, and that's the thing that could have seemed forced. Any number of those performers could have really oversold the joke, but they don't. Hmm. It feels natural, and thus it it is funny. Then they do it again. It's it's a bit more of a misunderstanding, but they do it again, and this time, yeah, all right. And then they have a little payoff where the sheriff sort of has some fun with them uh, later on in the film, and that's fine. That's all well and good, except like, just let it be. Yeah, you but... said the joke once, and it was funny. Yeah. They have another one where um, Javi is going off to work, and he says to his wife, I would kiss you on the mouth, but you haven't brushed your teeth, and your breast stinks. And that was it. Then he comes back from a long day at work. He's sweaty, and then she says, I would hug you, but you you know, you smell. Yeah. And it's just like, ugh, not everything needs to be bookended like that. Yeah. Not that, not that the first joke was that funny anyway, but yeah. like, I don't know. And there's scenes where they're ju- there's scenes where they're just having fun that I don't I don't believe that they're having fun. I believe they're acting. Like yeah. They're, when they go to the bank and that one, so I, I'm assuming they're going to the bank. Yeah. Some of these scenes that were we don't know what exactly the characters are doing, and it's almost as like maybe the script just wrote that they're sitting somewhere, and someone along the line was like, "We should have them doing something," and they were like, "Well, we're having them driving in a car. They're going, I don't know, to the bank or something," um, because that feels inessential to the to the story anyway but uh one's making fun of the of another for having a hawaiian shirt yeah and that goes on for way too long and then they're making fun of what each other wears but it doesn't have anything to do with the story it's just kind of supposed to show us that these characters have a a rapport yeah but we know that all well (laughs) they don't so much but we do know already that they're at least supposed to have a rapport this doesn't build on that anymore it's just empty movie that's maybe just meant to to get us laughing, yeah. But doesn't do that, yeah. And so they do have moments of humor, but then they push it on too long, either within the scene or later on in the film. And so I feel like you just need to be—you're not making a comedy. Allow some moments of comic relief, some naturalistic comic relief, and then move on. And the best—the the moments that do work in the comedy are ones that spring from something that's happening in the story, instead mm-hmm. of. Uh, seeming like they've been put there because someone in the filmmaking process said, oh, we need people to laugh here. Yeah. Um, when it's organic, when it comes up because it's something that would really happen or is, is referencing something that's actually happening in the movie, mm-hmm. those are usually the times when it is funny. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, the other stuff that uh, that bothers me. Well, okay, a couple things just from a technical standpoint. Uh, Alex Kendrick is again he's improved as a filmmaker but there are things that he's still very clunky about um as we mentioned staging uh non-action staging is is one of them um another is man you got to learn when to use fade outs and and crossfades like it's just or dissolves um because it, it seems very awkward it seems like he didn't know how to get out of a scene and so so he just fades to another scene when frankly just a cut would have been fine 
But also, that's indicative of a deeper problem, which is not knowing when to end a scene. I remember when I back when I was a back when I was a screenwriter. Um, I remember teachers said uh, a teacher once said like, you know. A good thing about you as a writer is you know when to end a scene. Now, I had deep flaws as a writer, but they said, like, you know when to end a scene. And I felt like, what's that mean? Like, that sounds, it sounds like you're happy that the scene's over. But as time has gone on, I've, underst- I've come to understand that actually is an asset, knowing when to end the scene. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, because there's a lot of scenes in the film that go on maybe about 30 seconds too long. Yeah. And then it doesn't matter whether you cut or fade or dissolve. Everything feels awkward. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just a couple of, and then a couple other things. One, and I brought this, I, d- I don't know if I remember if I said this uh, during the fireproof episode, but, uh, and this might be a function of budget. There are, how many scenes take place at night? Just in general. Um, s- some interiors. <laughs> yeah, but like as far as exteriors, it is all mid-afternoon, mm-hmm. and it's bright and sunny. And I mean, I hate to say it, and and again, he, it's a testament to him that in the midst of the two two thirty p.m. sun, the uh, the action sequences still work. But at the same time, like, don't be afraid of the dark. <laughs> I mean, because. <laughs> I mean, if you think these are are tense now, imagine when you can't see very clearly, and when the when the main characters only have a flashlight to go on, mm-hmm. you know that can allow some really good tension. That might be a function of the budget, but at the same time, they had a two million dollar budget. Yeah, you can do a fair amount with two million dollars. Oh yeah, and um, and I feel like this just goes back to like what Kendrick is and is not comfortable with, and maybe next time he'll, you know, he'll do better with that. And then the last thing is, as you mentioned, the sort of altar call at the end. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that? I've been talking for a while. Uh, I mean, I think looking at what he's done with the movie so far, that does seem like the best way to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit unnecessary of a restating of theme. Right. And one of the thing that one of the things that I think you've talked about on the show even before about Christian films is there there needs to be a reason to make a film. You're not mm-hmm. if you're just trying to make this message, if you're just trying to get this message out to people, why have you chosen to do it in film form? Mm-hmm. If you need to state and rest- if you need to dramatize the message. Uh, give us object lessons with different characters who are dealing with that message. And then at the end of the movie, tell us what it is that we're supposed to be doing. That seems like you, you've gone at least one step too far. Yeah. Um, the, I think a better movie gives us that message without giving us a sermon at the end. And it's really a sermon at the end. Oh yeah. Um, uh, a call to arms, as it were. Yep. Um, and I, I don't. I think the content of the message is is good. This is the same thing I thought about Fireproof. It had a good message, mm-hmm. um, from a especially from a Christian standpoint. Um, but 
I don't know, having having a having a scene where the main character and consequently the director and writer of the movie right. stands in front of an audience of people and tells them what he has uh, ostensibly been trying to tell us through two hours of movie. Right. And Why also that in that moment, I think his performance is not that great because he ceases to be that character and starts it, being him. Yes, I, I agree. Um, you know, he could have... I think it was a mistake either way to have that be the final scene where he just wraps everything up as if they had not been overtly stating the theme constantly throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if you're going to do it, then at least do it as... I mean. This character is not a public speaker, mm-hmm. and so throwing. He even some, shows. Um, yeah, he even shows earlier in the earlier in the movie when he mentions the fact that he's going to have to give this speech. He seems reticent about it, like he yeah. he doesn't want to have to be the one to do it. And then he sounds like a pastor. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, but yeah, it's just, and that's the that's the other thing is is one thing that the that the film does do as you expect it to is just. As I mentioned, it just keeps coming back to this theme of fathers and that sort of thing. And it's just. And I understand that's the film, but. I don't know. I, I it After a while, not even after a while, I mean, almost immediately, it just feels artificial. It feels totally just shoehorned in there like, OK, this is what it's going to be about. We're going to tell you right now. It it declares itself with the sheriff calling a uh, calling like a meeting. To say, like, all right, guys, we've all seen the statistics on criminals, that a criminal is whatever percent more likely to, uh, you know, a a kid is whatever percent more likely to become a criminal if they don't have a father. Fatherlessness is the cause of crime. So here's the thing. I appreciate you guys do your job well, but once you're, uh, you know, once you're off duty, go home and love your family. It's like, wow, this is weird 15 minutes in. Yeah. And you've just said it. It's Mm -hmm. just there. Yeah. And when you think about it, the sheriff has already said, here's the situation and here's what you should do. Mm-hmm. And then everything else is just a restatement of that. Yeah. And so there's no hemming and hawing about it. And then on, and then they put, I would say a cherry, but they put just a giant, I don't know, pineapple on top <laughs> uh, with that last uh, sermon. Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, if you need to, because of the way that the movie has gone so far, if you need to try and wrap it up by having someone have kind of a a speech and some sort of denouement where they all get together and mm-hmm. here we are, the movie is over. Do it in his backyard again in one of those awkward picnics. Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly like it's you can. No matter how melodramatic, and I mean this in the negative sense, there can be good melodrama, but no matter how negatively melodramatic something can be, there's almost always a way to undercut it where you're still getting the message across, but it doesn't look like you're trying to get a message across quite so, or that the character isn't trying to get a message across quite so clearly. Um, But yeah, so overall, as I said, huge improvement over Fireproof. It's still not a movie I'd recommend. Mm. Um, what do you think? Uh, I I don't think I'd recommend it purely from a film standpoint. I I feel like if someone wanted a good movie, a movie that has a good message about fatherhood, mm-hmm. I might say, well, you know, there's this. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you will get nothing out of this, right? And even if, and that's the thing, even if you are a Christian, you'll get something out of it. But as I, as I said, uh, with Fireproof, is that 
undoubtedly there's going to be a book to go along with this movie. That's kind of how they do it. Mm. And I would say everything that every bit of the message that is communicated in the movie will be communicated in the book. And at least then you don't have to slog through yeah. the bad art. Do you think they see these movies as a $2 million marketing campaign for the book? It could be that, yes. I don't. And, th- and if that's the case, these movies are way more effective than we're giving them credit for. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, we got, you know, because people paid nine, $9.5 million to see this movie mm-hmm. so that they'll go and then spend however many million dollars on the book. <laughs> and that's the thing. I don't want to give the impression that I'm cynical about that. I think maybe that is something that they're doing, but they're not doing it in order to make money. They're doing it because they believe this, the book or whatever is important That's and the true. movie's important. So they'd want to do that, but at the same time, it's just like, I, I'm fine with a movie having a message, and even if the message coincides with a book that is being put out or a you know, a, you know just a, a study that churches can do or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have the study, you don't have to make the movie just... The cinematic adaptation of that study. Yeah. It can be like the film can be an artistic, intelligent, subtle supplement to the book or program or whatever. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing. And I think that's more that's more effective of an object lesson if that's what the movie is intended to be as an object lesson. Mm -hmm. I feel like any movie where you where you're trying to push a very specific message is less enjoyable the more you harp on the message. Yeah. Um, and whether you agree with that movie, whether you agree with the message or well, if you agree with the message, you're going to like it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's if it's restating the message over and over and over again, it's it's almost like I could just have someone sit in the corner of my house and tell me the message every time I come inside instead of uh, having to, you know, this is this is not what I'm supposed to get out of a movie. I'm supposed to. Yeah. They're supposed to be <laughs> anytime I talk about what a movie is supposed to be, I'm gonna get into such a mess, so i'm not I'm not gonna even go really there. why why <sighs> because I like so like i like I like Casablanca and I like last year at Marion Bod. Those two mm-hmm. movies are black and white, and that's what they have in common there's mm-hmm. they're both movies <laughs> within the scope okay within okay. the scope of movies that's nearly the only thing they have in common, okay. I'll I'll give you there are there are male characters and there are female characters in both. There's there probably some French names in both. <laughs> That's true. There is dialogue spoken. <laughs> um, but then again, I've seen movies without dialogue spoken that I've liked. So mm-hmm. uh, the, there's no I think right or wrong and at what film is supposed to be. But when a film has set out to be a certain thing, this movie has certainly set out to be a drama with a message. Mm-hmm. And I think. It gets the message across, but the message is more important than the drama, and the drama is not very good. Right. Um, where even though we said they are moving forwards to a point where they, I think they might be able to make a real affecting drama at some point, mm-hmm. but uh, as it stands now, it's kind of it's bad. Uh, it's shaky drama that's meant to convey uh, a perfect message. Um. Real quick, actually, I, I just thought of something else in the movie that uh, that I'm kind of interested in your take on because I know that because because you were mentioning like okay if you're a Christian and you watch the movie you'll probably like the message but the movie is bad um, and I agree with that 
But there is one there is one element in the film that I have heard non Christians or rather read non Christians talk about. Um and that is the one of the ring in which uh Nathan takes his daughter out to to a nice dinner mm. uh and says she's fifteen and uh she has received uh she's getting some attention from from boys now and his whole thing is now they can't uh they can't see well first off he just says they can't see it till you're 17 and you know that's fine sure that's that's fine with me but um if that's the rule you want to make whatever yeah um but he goes on to say that like they can't they also can't see you until your mom and i meet them and approve of them i'm kind of okay with that as well yeah but then they take it a step further and and I've heard this I've heard of this being done before and I believe it was even in, in an episode of Family Guy. Was it Family Guy or American Dad? Or was it the Cleveland show? It was it was a Seth MacFarlane <laughs> enterprise. Um and uh in which he takes his daughter out and says, you know, I I love you and I want the best for you and I feel like you should respect your mother and I and respect, you know, our wishes, but also, you know, the, the man that, that eventually dates you and marries you or whatever. We want him to be like a strong Christian who respects you and respects us, respects the idea of family. Okay. So far, so good. Um, but then he actually presents her with a ring, quite frankly, as if he were asking her to marry him. Yeah. He's got the box and everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, pops it open, and she's like really excited about it, and and he says like this is a symbol, like you take this off when you put your wedding ring on, and um, and then we actually we see a very hokey image of her like laying in bed, like admiring the ring, as if given it to her, as if like her, you know, her bow has given it to her. Yeah, or that 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 little shot there rings very untrue with me. Yeah, um, and possibly even a. A bit creepy. Yeah, I... <sighs> that might just be me, though. No, uh, I feel like I, I can identify with that with a little bit with that a little bit because I've heard of that happening before. Mm-hmm. I The college I went to was a very small Christian college in Tennessee, and I'm pretty sure that I knew girls who... That's what their, their father had taken them out on a nice dinner at some point, and... And said, like, this is the way that a boy should treat you. I think I may have heard of, of ones where their father had actually given them some kind of promise ring type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I that, that doesn't seem as much like I can, like I have a vivid memory of that ever happening. But um, it's not too much a step further from what I, what right. I know of a little bit. And... And I guess in my I guess what I'm asking is what do you think of that practice not not necessarily the philosophy behind it hmm. but the practice itself of here's this ring and I don't know I I think this takes us a little bit away from from the movie entirely just which is fine with me um well just, I I wanted to bring it up to make it, to make it clear to any non-Christians that that happen to be listening that um I wanted to bring it up because if they happen to see that scene and we didn't mention it, I didn't want them to think that we are totally okay with it. Or that, that it's a regular so, Christian practice. Right. I, I think I I don't really like it. Um, 
I don't have children, mm-hmm. so I <laughs> don't take any parenting advice from me. <laughs> but really, because I've I've been planning on taking my parenting advice only from you. Oh no! Once you have kids, then you can. Okay, all right. Yeah, Since enough. you don't yet, you don't have to now. Okay, but, fair uh, enough. For other people who already have kids, don't listen to a word I say. Okay. Anyway, um, I I think I don't like anything where the it seems like the father takes the role of sort of this pre-husband. Yeah. The role of a father is very different from the role of a husband. Mm-hmm. Um, they both, there's a protect, a protector element in both of those roles, but I think they're, they're very different things. And I feel like the ring confuses the role between the two. And that's mm-hmm. why I feel like at least from the way I see the world at this point in my life, I feel like that is not something I would be okay with doing. Right. And, and also I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. I think that can have an almost, this, this might be too lofty a term, but it almost has a, I think a psychological impact where I I find myself wondering if any, if any boyfriend could ever measure up because they're, you know, they're, they're being measured against, father who protect who created me and protects me yeah and you know and i've i've heard stories i've told you stories about friends of mine who have gotten married to women who clearly are and you'll find this by the way you'll find this with like men and their parents as well it's not like either gender has monopoly on this but in this particular instance, uh, because this is, the fil- this is what the film talks about, I have I I've known guys who get married to women who are, they've got one foot with their family and one foot with their husband, and frankly, the foot with their husband is the one that is most likely to go over. Like yeah. they cannot separate themselves and commit fully to the idea of this of being part of a marriage, mm-hmm. and. And I feel like something like this can really where literally the only way that you're going to get this ring on my finger is to take the one that, of my father's off. Mm. I feel like there's an almost psychological uh, not damage, but I feel like it can send signals that are going that would be difficult to to get past later in life. Yeah, but that's 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 just me. Um, and uh, and so I wanted to 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 say like. While the idea of, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, it's not like it's not like my parents said to me, like, all right, look, if a woman respects you or not, or if they respect me or not, we don't really care. Like, they didn't say that. (laughs) Like, it's this is, uh, you know, this is just kind of how it is for for everybody. Um, But the idea of of, you know, showing respect for the family unit, respect for God, respect for the person that you're wanting to date uh that's all well and good that's uh i'm on board with that but if there's any non-christians listening who find that scene in the film a little disturbing uh, i wanted to emphasize that that is not necessarily a common practice and not every christian is totally on board with that so i wanted to get that out there uh first mm-hmm. before we before we move on and i think we will move on uh, I think we're actually going to take a break first because we've been talking for a while, and when we come back, we will talk very briefly about the companion film, which is a uh, 1979 film, Kramer vs. Kramer.
All right, so we're back. Uh, as uh, as I pushed stop in GarageBand, I happened to notice how long we had been recording because my <laughs> back is to the computer, and so uh, wow, to think I. Uh, I'm an idiot to think that I was like, okay, we can pull this off in an hour, right? That's what I said a couple days ago when we uh, came back from the movie. Did and, you say uh, that? I feel like if you had said the whole thing could be over in an hour, I would have said no. Uh, you did say no. Did I, I really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I good. said like, I, it's like, you know, I, I feel like we don't, it doesn't have to be super long. We could probably do this in an hour. And you're like, well, you know, uh, we should just let ourselves go as if to say, come on, Tyler, you know you and you know me. And uh, yeah, sure enough. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, everybody. But there's some gold in there. Yeah, sure. There's gold in them hills. Mountain. This is a full mountain, and you got to scrounge quite right. a bit to find any gold. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. Don't let that uh, influence uh, your voting, um, <laughs> people who are reviewing the submissions for the podcast awards. <laughs> so um, provi- They haven't made it this far. So, um, okay. Uh, so the companion film... I want to talk about uh, pretty quickly because I don't really want to uh, to spend uh, a whole lot more time, um, even though I just spent several minutes talking about how long we've been going. Oh, my. Okay, so uh, I love podcasting. It lets me do whatever I want. Um, <laughs> and judge yourself for it afterwards. Yes, on mic. <laughs> so, uh, so the companion film is a movie that I love. It's called Kramer vs. Kramer. It was written and directed by Robert Benton. Uh, it was based on a novel by Avery Corman. It stars a couple of heavy hitters. You got your Dustin Hoffman. You got your Meryl Streep. Uh, it won several Oscars, including Best Picture, Director. Which means, since it got Best Picture, that means at this rate, I will have written an article about it winning Best Picture in the year 2025. Yeah, you really got to get on this. Come on, man. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, uh, you're a full-fledged uh, co-host now. I know. You're a full partner in this thing now. I know. I have so many things to write. I know. It's fine. You, you're busy. I'll with get to things. it. I do want to. I do want to get to. It. I'm stalled on Braveheart. This is distracting. Let's okay. get on to Kramer versus Kramer. All right. Back to business. Okay. So, one best picture director, actor, supporting actress for Meryl Streep, actor for Dustin Hoffman, and best adapted screenplay. Uh, it was nominated for best supporting actor for Justin Henry, who was, I believe, the youngest. This made him the youngest nominee in Oscar history. At the time, or still in Oscar? I think still, because I think no, he was really? eight. Oh, maybe. So, because um, I know that like Haley Joel Osment was 11. Yeah, he was a little um, So, uh, yeah, it was exactly. also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for uh, Actress for Jane Alexander, uh, Cinematography and Editing. So, uh, it's, it's interesting that in a year that had, I believe, all that jazz and Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. That this is what won Best Picture. Um <laughs> Not that it's a bad movie. I think it's a wonderful film, but it's it's so interesting when when a, a pretty small movie wins over all kinds of spectacle. Yeah. So and I think of I think of nineteen seventy nine as being kind of a year of spectacle in in uh, music too. Mm-hmm. The first big one that comes to mind from nineteen seventy nine is The Wall. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just the biggest bombastic spectacle in yeah. in in, uh, in music history, maybe. Don't get me wrong. I love the wall. Oh no, boy, I do too. Oh, no, yeah. They're uh, swinging for the fences on that one. <laughs> but uh, so Kramer versus Kramer, real quick, uh, is about well the Kramer family. Mm-hmm. They, which consists of Ted, Joanna, and Billy. Ted, played by Dustin Hoffman, 
is a workaholic. He's uh, a businessman, and I believe he's in advertising. Mm -hmm. And so he's out of the house all the time. And when the film starts, he, I believe, has just woken up, and his wife says, I'm leaving. And so she leaves, and he is suddenly... Wait, what? Like, he doesn't totally understand what's going on. But one thing he does know is that he suddenly is left in charge of his son, uh, Billy. And he doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't know what that in, what that means. And he tries to make breakfast for the kid and winds up like, he, he doesn't do this. He doesn't make <laughs> breakfast. So he, like, burns himself and he gets really angry. Because in the midst of doing all this, he also is trying to figure out so did my wife leave me? Like there's a lot going on there and I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of being kind of glib about it but in the moment it's I think this is probably one of Dustin Hoffman's best performances and of course I mean he won best actor for it not that that necessarily means anything but uh but it's a really great performance uh because in that scene you are so stressed by what's going on and you really get you really have a strong sense of uh of what Ted is going through. <laughs> and so as the film continues, we don't know what happened to his wife. She left and she, you know, never to be heard from again, seemingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just him and his son. And he really hasn't been a father. He's been working and left the parenting to his wife, but now she's gone and who's going to take care of the kid. Mm-hmm. And basically the film is, him bonding with his son and learning what it means to be a father. And then his wife comes back and wants custody, but he doesn't want, and there's there in lay the Kramer versus Kramer of the title. Right. Not to be confused with Kramer versus predator. (laughs) Oh, that movie's really short. (laughs) Um, but, uh, and so it's, it's an interesting, It's an interesting dilemma, by the way, because since we've been spending the film with Ted, we are on his side. Mm. And Joanna, we see her as, you know, kind of this evil woman. Yeah, she abandoned him and, and, uh, and then comes back and just wants the kid. So we see it that way. But then, because it's, it's written very well, but also Meryl Streep plays the character pretty sympathetically, kind of flaky, but... Pretty sympathetically, we come to realize, yeah, she's been raising the kid for eight years. Mm. He's been raising the kid for, by this time, about six months to a year. I don't totally remember the timeline. but mm. uh, So it's like, yeah, I understand that you've done, you know, what a father's supposed to do in this short time, and that's all well and good. you forced to do so. Yeah. You, you, if I hadn't left, you wouldn't. Everything would have been going as it had been. Mm. I've got eight years into this, into this child. I deserve custody. And so you actually are kind of torn. She actually does have, you know, points to make. And and the story of Ted Kramer is not merely learning to get, you know, getting to know his son and getting to love his son and getting to learn what it is to be a good parent, but also by the end he realizes, yeah, she's kind of right. Like he the whole situation makes him a better and more selfless person. And, you know, you compare, you compare that to Courageous, which 
there's not a lot of you know there's there's some arc to the characters you're in it everything's a little scattershot this one there's a very clear arc and it progresses very naturally there's a nice structure to it mm. but what another thing that i really like is that in in courageous they basically make it that that the fathers it's all on them and it is on them it's on ted kramer as well don't get me wrong but you know, oh, your son is just, you know, in, in the case of uh, Alex Kendrick's character in Courageous, your son is just trying to connect with you. Why don't you just, con- why don't you try to connect with him? And that's it. And then the daughter is just a, you know, a delightful moppet. Mm-hmm. And he just can't really be bothered. So it's all on, it's all on him, certainly. In Kramer versus Kramer, his son is a delightful kid, but can be a brat, as all kids can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can be defiant, he can be annoying, and it really pushes Ted to the limit. It re- like in that movie, I you get a real. I'm not a parent, hmm. and in watching that movie, you get a strong sense of what parenting really means. Kramer versus Kramer gives you a better idea of the difficulties of actually being a parent, mm-hmm. whereas in Courageous, it's kind of it's almost kind of skimmed over what the actual difficulty is in being a parent. Right. When do we see these character the the fathers in uh, Courageous really dealing with having to be parents? Yeah. The biggest thing we see is that Alex Kendrick's character decides he's going to go on a 5K run with his son, which is yeah. a one-time commitment and in the scope of things, pretty easy to do if that's all it takes to be a better father. And it's, you know, and and to go with my own family, like my brother uh, was kind of a rebellious, you know, he was a pretty rebellious kid. And so, and my, my dad was a bit of a workaholic as well. And so I think he would have been the first one to say he wasn't totally engaged with his family. But when he would try to be, he would bump up against my brother. And now what do you do? You know, the realities of parenting are what Kramer versus Kramer is all about. And whereas I think and this is this is one of the problems with Courageous is that the the filmmakers, like I said, they they're willing to take a few steps towards realism. But once they start getting into the real the messiness of it all, they they scale it back. Yeah, I I would have liked to see a scene where. The this father wants to go and, and connect with his son more, and the son says it's too little, too late. You yeah, know? Um, that's that would have been something interesting, dramatically to deal with, and something yeah. heavy. And just and this idea of like really having to work for it, or just or how about this? There's a, another movie that's really wonderful. Um, I was actually thinking of doing it uh, as an episode of More Than One Lesson, and I still might. It's called World's Greatest Dad with Robin Williams, written and directed by. Bobcat Goldthwait, you may know him as Zed from the Police Academy series. I hope you do. Yep, absolutely. Um, And it's a great little movie, and one thing that it's about is Robin Williams' teenage son is a jerk. He is unlikable. He's a little racist. He's a little homophobic. Like, he's really... You don't like him, and his dad doesn't really like him. But over the course of the film, he realizes, you know, I may not have always liked my kid, but I loved him. And spoilers for World's Greatest Dad, the, the the son winds up dying, and and Robin Williams winds up sort of wishing that he had time with him again, even though he was a jerk, even though he was annoying. Mm. And to me, that's again, I am not a parent, but I have a lot of friends that are, and 
that that's not the same. I'm not speaking from from experience, and I don't want to make it seem as though I. It's like I've got friends who have kids, so I know all about it. <laughs> I have a nephew. I know what I'm doing. And so, like, so that's that's one of the things that I really like that Kramer versus Kramer embraces is the the messy, annoying reality of parenting. And what it really means to be a father, it means fighting through your own rage, fighting through your own impatience, mm-hmm. fighting through possibly the insult, uh, the insults that your kids throw at you. Yeah. I mean, his own son says, I hate you. Yeah. You know, and he, he says it in a tantrum. But like that's those are hurtful words. And you have to fight through that and love the kid. Mm-hmm. And Ted makes a lot of mistakes. He yells right back at his son. And. You know, it's, and that's what makes the scenes where they're both willing to overcome that, both father and son are willing to overcome that. It's what makes those those scenes. First off, I don't think they're very cheesy, but any cheese that is there, it, they've earned it hmm. because we've seen how bad it can be. Yeah, it's not like, hey, eat your vegetables. No. All right, I love you, <laughs> you little scamp. Let's that's, go to the park. Right, right. Let's go for a run. Like it's that's not earned, and Kramer versus Kramer earns it completely. And what's interesting is that the film, the climax of the film, much like Courageous, ends with a monologue. There, there is there is some some stuff that happens after that, but it ends with uh, you know it it climaxes with Dustin Hoffman's character in the midst of the divorce uh, in the courtroom, giving testimony or not maybe not testimony but making a statement to the judge about what he has learned and and the mistakes that he has made. And that's and and Ted Kramer now admittedly he is in advertising so he's probably a little bit more used to making presentations so <laughs> he's a bit of, a bit better of a, of a speaker but the it's the monologue is written really well and it's played very well because it's a guy who he needs to be eloquent but he can't be too eloquent that he comes off as soulless. And he can't be too desperate, but he is desperate. He wants he wants custody of his kid, mm-hmm. and so like there's a lot of layers going on, and it's all in how it's written, and it's all in how Dustin Hoffman plays him. And the drama requires that he literally make a case for himself, mm-hmm. whereas in Courageous, there's no there's no narrative call for that speech at the end. Right. There's no, exactly yes. There's nothing requiring it. It's something that he just decided he was going to do. Yeah. Um, and so and that and that speaks again to the story structure. Mm. You know, there there are stakes to be sure in Courageous, but there are major stakes in Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. There's a wonderful there's a wonderful sequence where this and and it speaks a lot to the and it's about in the middle of the film. It speaks to where the character is is headed, where this guy is high, you know, he's he's paid really well. He's very well respected, but he's a parent now and when Parental things, you know, when he's required for parental duties, he does that and he kind of neglects his job and he winds up getting being let go. Mm. And he's in the middle of a divorce of of like a custody battle. He can't be without a job. So he goes to all these places. He and he winds up. It's like Christmas time. There's a Christmas party going on and he goes to this guy and interviews on the day for a job that pays much less that he's way overqualified for that in a a year before he never would have touched that job ever mm. but he wants 
custody of his kid, and this is the sacrifice that he needs to make. And look at what a sacrifice that is in contrast to the sacrifices that the sheriff in or the deputy in Courageous has to make. Right. Any of the any of the deputies. And so like so it's stuff like that. It's all about stakes. It's all about putting us in the emotional state of the character, which is desperation, but love and discovery. Like it's all there. And it's definitely in the performance, but it's in the writing, it's in the way the film is structured. It's just a it's just a really wonderful film. And so let's say you're listening to this and you liked Courageous and you've listened this far. Um, seek out Kramer versus Kramer. There's some language in it, and I think there's... I don't know if there's any nudity, but there's implied sex. These characters are not Christian. You need to recognize that. But man, if you want to see some uh, depiction of a father stepping it up and being a father, Kramer versus Kramer is it. I mean, that is the best example of that I can think of. Mm. So I highly recommend it. Now then, I would like to end with some Bible verses, unless you've oh. got anything you want to throw no, in. No, you go right ahead. All right. Um, speaking to the themes of, of these films, and I don't want to you know, overemphasize them because the movie already kind of does, um, and I also don't want to play this up because, as I mentioned, I'm not a father, so I don't I don't want to be like, here's a Bible verse, dads, get to it. Like I don't want it to be like that. But but I'll just I'll just read off a few. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. That's Psalm 103:13. Uh, the reason that I brought that up is because, um, as I've mentioned, as I mentioned in my testimony episode. Um, it's not unusual for a kid's view of God to be associated with the view of their father. Not even of both parents, their father specifically, for whatever reason. And a verse like this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. All, there's a comparison there. And so I think, you know, we're, we're sort of taught to make those comparisons. And so if you're a father, like, you need to realize if you are being neglectful or if you are being cold and distant, that may not only affect your kid's view of you, but of God as well. And they're going to have to fight through that. That's something that I've had to fight through. My dad worked a lot, and I didn't really get to know him until I was a little older. And, uh, and that definitely had an impact on the way that I see God. Um, you can chime in if you want, tell any stories from your own life, or I can keep going. I've got several more. You 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 go ahead. I don't have a I don't have anything to speak to that specifically. Okay. Um, so these are just uh, these are just some some words of advice from one could say some proverbs. It's from proverbs. Oh, oh that's fine. Uh, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's proverbs twenty two six. And then here's proverbs twenty nine seventeen. Discipline your children, and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. Now, admittedly, if you read that the wrong way, it could be like, beat your kid until he gives you what you want. <laughs> uh, that's not what it's saying. Um, but, and then uh, Colossians 3, verse 21, fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And then Hebrews twelve seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? So the reason that I wanted to read all these is because the Bible very clearly states, and it says, you know, about parents in general, but about fathers specifically, like you have, you know, I'll say we, I'm not a father yet, but I will be someday. And, 
And I, I wonder if I will be a good one because I, I, I can't imagine having the level of patience that some of my friends or my brother uh, <laughs> have been able to display towards their children. I mm-hmm. can't imagine it. But, uh, but when the time comes, like, this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to not merely be there. I'm going to have to be willing to discipline my kid, be willing to train my kid in, in you know, the ways of, of Christianity. In the way he should go. And But at the same time, I'm not to embitter my children or they'll become discouraged. That's mm-hmm. the other side of it. Cause we, go ahead. I was just going to say it all kind of points towards the fact that there is a big responsibility there and that uh, God has specific, pretty specific directions for uh for the way this that fathers are, are supposed to raise their children and mm-hmm. um i don't know i think in both films we see people who don't understand who at least at first don't understand the responsibility and don't understand how important it is and uh what effect that can have on both them their children and themselves and uh yeah i think the bible makes a strong case for uh for the importance and the uh the importance beyond what we might automatically understand of a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and of course there's also, it's not, again, I don't want to give the impression that like, that, uh, well, mothers are off the hook, be whatever you want, you know, <laughs> embrace, oh, yeah. be like uh, Meryl Streep and Kramer versus Kramer. Just leave. Yeah. If you want, if you don't like it, leave. And yeah. then if you, if you fight the court battle well enough, you can get the kid back. If you want it, if you don't want it, Hey, do what you got to do. Uh, I'm not saying that. Uh, I want. I want to speak specifically to the themes that these movies are are about, and they are very specifically about fathers. Um, and I. And at first, part of me was like, "So what does the mother do? Like a mother has never screwed up the life of her child." But then I like. Then I realized that was me being defensive as a man, and I just need to recognize this is a movie that was written and directed by men as a way of of encouraging other men like we could go and lecture women if we want but that's not necessarily our place that's not our job we are to encourage each other and in in some cases you know kind of rebuke each other to Mm -hmm. use a christianese type word so um admonish one another admonish that's a good one yes um so yeah oh that was in the sermon i know that's 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 very exciting (laughs) all right now i guess i have to post that sermon um (laughs) So uh, <laughs> you'll post the sermon and be like, this is the one that uses the word admonish. <laughs> I was probably going to post it anyway because I really liked it. It but, was a um, good sermon. We had a very good uh, shout out to Pacific Crossroads Church. If anyone wants to check out their uh, their podcast recently, we've had some very good messages in this uh, in this series. Absolutely. Very encouraging. Uh, so. So, yeah, I guess that's, you know, I, I, I hate to kind of give short shrift to the uh, to the message that these movies are conveying, but. Uh, but I, I didn't want to play that play it up too much because I didn't want to seem like I was speaking from a a nice safe position of you know n- not being a dad. <laughs> so um, so yeah, and that's the that's the thing is courageous. It's not a movie I recommend. I'm sure there will be a book to go along with it. Read the book. If you do want to see it, be prepared. There's a lot wrong with it artistically. Um, if you are a fan of Courageous and you think there's nothing wrong, I would say demand more of your movies. It's a big step forward, don't get me wrong, 
But the thing that I've that I've been thinking of when it comes to Christian film is think of the movie Courageous, think of the movie Fireproof. If these were not made by a Christian company, if these did not have Christian themes, but if the if the artistic quality was the same, would you watch it? Hmm. Would you like it? If the answer is no, then that means that you are willing to compromise artistically in favor of a message that you already agree with. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do that. You can actually have a movie that is artistically good that is on message. Yeah. So I want to throw that out there. And for those that haven't seen Kramer versus Kramer, seek it out. It's a wonderful film. Um, we don't yet know what the next episode is going to be because this one is actually a week early because uh, we wanted to be somewhat timely. So, uh, but I'll try and let you know on Twitter or Facebook, uh, when we decide what that'll be. Um, and then Josh is also, uh, involved in a movie right now that's going to require about 18 hours, uh, per day, uh, of his schedule. <laughs> Hopefully so, not, but that might happen. So we're not really sure. I, I, no promises when the next one will be. It might have to be when the movie is done. Cause, uh, you know, I don't want him to, you know drag in here and just be absolutely exhausted and then really make the show worse is the way I look We'll just at have it. to talk about something which I know about even like in my sleep. So it has to be like talk about Star Wars and the companion film will be The Empire Strikes Back. There you I'm go. Like, ah, well, no, speaking of fathers, that's man. about fathers. <laughs> um, you guys like lightsabers? <laughs> that's what you would say in it your sleep? It would be something like that. You would you would ask questions, in fact. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that puts the onus on somebody else. They Fair have enough. to make the conversation. I Then I can go back to sleep while they talk about lightsabers. Fair enough. The hope is that I'll be so excited about lightsabers, even in my tired state, that I'll wake me back up. The new hope. Oh. All right. So, um, and on that, I'm sorry, everybody. Um, so, uh, morethanonelesson.com is where you can go for any number of things. You can read blogs. You can check out videos from our various... Uh, our various guests, including some videos uh, that Josh is uh, involved in. Um, you can find links to various other movie sites, uh, churches, a few churches around the country that I've gone to and recommend, um, and uh, other and other links uh, for uh, like Christian resources and that sort of thing. So uh, you can also buy stuff from our store, I believe. Uh, well, Courageous is not available for sale, but I will make sure that Kramer versus Kramer is there if you want to buy it. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that's it. You can you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash morelessons. Uh, you can also join the Facebook group. I try to, you know, add any new uh, postings uh, on there. Um, and uh, where can people uh, find you online? At the Josh Long. Via Twitter. That's the only place you can find me. The you Josh my, Long. You can check out my IMDB page if you're feeling bored someday. I'm Josh Long too. Okay. I think I'll pu- I think I have a link to it. Yeah. <laughs> that seems weird. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. I need people to know, like, oh man, this new co host has his bona fides. <laughs> this guy he's been the he's been the assistant director on several short films. And let's not forget that film Wesley that he was in with Rusty Martin of the exactly. film Courageous. And exactly. that brings us back around. Josh, as always, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. I guess you're always going to be here. I got to stop thanking you. Always going to be here. Ugh. I don't like the way you said that. All right. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll get you next time. All Bye. Right. Bye.